0: This ad free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For August 11th, 2022, it's the What's in Trump's Safe edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington D.C. Joining me from New Haven, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. How are you? I'm good. And John is still away somewhere, but that doesn't matter because we have our beloved regular Juliet Kayyem of Harvard's Kennedy School and the author of The Devil Never Sleeps. Hello, Juliet, from wherever you are. Also, New England.
1: Good hello. Jamestown, Rhode Island.
0: This week on the GabFest, why did the FBI search Mar-a-Lago, and will it be politically damaging for the Democrats that they did so? Then, how big a deal is the Inflation Reduction Act? Has Joe Biden had the most successful presidential month since Lyndon Baines Johnson? And then the full story of Trump's cruel and ineffective family separation policy has finally been told. We will talk to Atlantic reporter Caitlin Dickerson about her exhaustive and grueling account of one of Trump's worst policies. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. The FBI executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's Florida state, and reporting suggests they were looking for records, classified materials, that Trump had taken from the White House and not returned, as the law requires. It is the first time a former president has ever been subjected to a search warrant like this. But, I mean, we've never had a Trump before, so first times for everything always. Juliet, what do we know about how this would have been approved and why it might have been approved and what was approved?
1: Sounds like it was a, a relatively normal process with an a- abnormal uh, subject, uh, which is they needed infra- They information judicial approval uh, to get the information. They have essentially a document which lists out the reasons why they need the information and what they're looking for. They apparently by news reports, they coordinate in a way with the Secret Service at Mar-a-Lago because that's the governing law enforcement agency over that place. Uh, They do it when Trump is not there uh, and they know he's not there because they don't want uh, any interaction with him Uh, and they go in. Uh, seeking um, uh, documents. Okay, so that's what we know. What documents now is just a matter of what we know from reporting. Trump, the uh, Department of Justice certainly knows, but. Uh, uh, protocol and history. And I I also think fairness is a reason why we're not learning from the Department of Justice. Uh, There's been no, essentially no acknowledgement of what happened uh, 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 at Mar-a-Lago. And then the third part is, what is it? That's where there's just lots of speculation about uh, what's in the documents. I will say there's things that you do know simply from the facts. The division within the Department of Justice is the National Security Division, which executed uh, the search the National Security Division uh, with a subpart within the division uh, that deals with classified information and improper disclosure. So in other words, this is not the tax division. So we certainly know something from that. Um, And the other is we also know that Trump gave up some materials earlier that he had uh, uh, classified information earlier that he had taken without authorization he gave up those documents so the question is is why did, did why did he retain this group so that's what we know right now
0: do you Emily think it's likely that they really were only looking for documents taken from the White House and not returned and why would that be addressed when that's usually just solved administratively again no precedent for anyone who's behaved like Trump but this does seem like an unusual way to solve a problem that hasn't been solved in this way before.
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's got to be more to it. Not that I have any inside information to that effect. It just doesn't add up to me that if they're just having an argument with him, you took some classified materials, you need to give them back, that that would be enough for a raid on the former president's residence. That is just such a ramping up that you would think there was something else going on here, something... um, That the Justice Department thinks could be criminal um, or there's a kind of willful withholding of information or they're worried it's going to get shredded or there's some disloyalty to the United States. Those are those are some of the factors that the FBI has put forward in other cases in which there have been these kinds of unusual moves. And so it was useful to me to have those parameters because I do think it's going to be deflating if this just turns out to be like a fight with the National Archives.
0: Over like some letters that Kim Jong-un sent to Trump.
2: Right, which like Trump has been waving around as like, you know, a uh, memorabilia.
0: Emily, just to get one thing out of the way, there's been some Twitter chirping that if Trump were charged under a particular statute, one of the particular statutes about holding onto classified documents, he could be disqualified for being president again. Why was that theory, theorizing, twitterizing, incomplete or wrong?
2: Well, it does say this in the statute. The question is whether Congress has the power to change the qualifications for the presidency that are in the Constitution. And the answer seems to be no. And we already ran this play when Hillary Clinton was being accused of, you know, potentially violating the statute when we were spending endless time thinking about her email server and there was already a kind of whole vetting by law professors of this theory and essentially people said no
0: so the the right Juliet you wrote about this a bit is in full froth then the now we're at war crowd who see this as a wholly political act of vengeance by the Biden regime capital R regime what is to be done about this sense that that the government is now, a tool that i think whether or not I, I think it's highly unlikely that president biden or any of biden's staffers organize this to get back at trump i think this is almost certainly something being done by career prosecutors and approved probably very reluctantly by a political appointee somewhere in the justice department but there is going to be the sense on the right that you can use the justice department now to go after your political enemies this is this that trump did it and now Biden's doing it, so it means it's free reign for anybody to do this uh, in the future. How are we going to keep this sort of professionalized in the future? Or we is a a next president going to use this? Tool again and again to go after political enemies.
1: I mean, when when Nixon was impeached, there was always, if you impeach him, you know, every future president will be impeached. And the truth is, if you stay out of trouble, that isn't true. Ronald Reagan, Carter, Obama. I mean, in other words, there's 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 you know the, the there's and Bush, uh, both Bushes. So it's, it's it's this this sort of threat that is going to be used by the other side. Is it generally actually that ends up not being? Uh, true, and this narrative is part of the incitement, the anger narrative. The we're constantly, you know, we're the 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 sort of right wing. We're always pissed off, and we're never happy narrative, which really did get triggered uh, on Monday night when the raid happened. That that's the world I live in, and I had never seen anything like it. Since January 6th, Uh, everyone from responsible or should be more responsible political leaders uh, to really the dregs of society uh, are pushing a violence narrative, which they get from Trump. Trump has always had violence as the sort of final you know, final political play. I mean, he just thinks violence is sort of a natural part of politics, and and we've gotten kind of used to it. So, I think it is distressing, and I think the elevation of this language is something that uh, will take years to hopefully rot out of our system. Uh, We'll tire of it, Uh, but, you know, there's always lone wolves and others who will act on it. There is also signs of a counter Insurgency uh, that we shouldn't forget either. The groups are dissipated. They can't raise money. They're not increasing in size, even though they're gr- they're growing louder. Uh, Trump is isolated. He's deplatformed. Uh, the Republican Party is is complicated in terms of how it's voting. That's better than it it being solely about Trump. Uh, and um, uh, and polling now suggests that most rep- majority Republicans would would not. Uh, beg for trump if he exited uh, those are the signs that an ideology is not growing and that's just basically the ideologies don't die they either grow or they dissipate and i think there's lots of signs that this one at least the violent side is struggling in the post january 6 enforcement uh and other efforts
0: what do you make of the political implications of this search i I am skeptical. I'm skeptical that this is delightful for the dem- the Democrats politically or for, for President Biden in particular. Um, unless it turns out that they, what they've recovered is really quite alarming and they, they are able to share that in, in in a relatively short time frame. But otherwise, it feels like it's going to seem uh, political, potentially political and trivial. Uh, and and also makes Trump into a martyr rather than than the villain that we know that he is, and it ag- and it aggravates the right and it, it sort of a- it antagonizes and gins up emotion, which makes people more likely to vote against you.
2: It doesn't seem like this is something that will dissuade Trump supporters, right? This is only going to make them feel more embattled. Whether it motivates liberals and Democrats or independents, whether this, there's a sense that Trump is tainted and corrupt, I mean how much more evidence do we need of that? Right. Like this is it's this is where you sort of become defamation proof. Like there's so much evidence. I mean, we have Trump pleading the fifth over and over again in the civil case in New York where uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James was deposing him or was supposed to depose him this week. And suddenly, you know, Trump, who in the past has scoffed at pleading the fifth. Why would you do that unless you're guilty? Well, turns out, like, if you don't want to answer questions, it's a pretty good route to take, especially if there's still at least the possibility of a criminal investigation in New York, though the district attorney in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, has really backed away from that. Anyway, this is all part of Trump's persona. And so I think you're probably right, David, that if this kind of proves to be not much and you have these pretty shocking, you know, headlines about um, raiding Mar-a-Lago, that is not really going to be an asset for the Democrats. Whether it really matters in the end compared to, like, gas prices and inflation, I think that's another question.
0: I want to just close. I I was really struck by the juxtaposition of the Trump search and the alex jones trial and we're in this whether or not the the trump search was over something broad or something narrow i think it's it would be highly unlikely that it was over nothing it's almost certainly he did at least take some records that he wasn't supposed to have and we know that trump is has a history of invoking executive privilege in preposterous ways withholding records withholding documents having his his employees and and aides withhold testimony uh, Alex Jones clearly withheld a phone that had all kinds of in, important evidence on it uh, that was required. And you realize how much of the law depends on people recognizing the legitimacy of the law and respecting it. And I worry that we're in this position where, yes, these are examples. Alex Jones is being held uh, liable, financially liable. And maybe Trump is going to be held criminally responsible for some some sort of records mishandling. But, um, like it's very likely they could get away with it, and there's this, just this this scoffing, scornful way that that some people want to treat the law. And if they do and can get away with it, it just really is it weakens your profession. Emily and Juliet,
2: a hundred percent. I mean, don't you think about that every time they see someone's phone? Like this week, it was Representative Scott Perry from Pennsylvania. Like I don't want to encourage mass deletion, but if you're Scott Perry, didn't you already go through your phone? Like, come on.
0: President Biden, has there ever been a better president, a more successful president in a history of history of histories? The most extraordinary run of any president in memory. The CHIPS Act. Woo! Legislation protecting veterans' health care. Killed the head of Al-Qaeda. Gas prices are plunging. Inflation's down to zero. Zero percent in July. And the jobs report. Everyone has a job. Juliet has seven new jobs and once the house approves it he will sign the inflation reduction act a bill that will remake climate policy and tax policy and most of this happened while he had covid and he was also he also turned 134 years old so it's pretty impressive emily don't you think
2: i mean i guess he's not jimmy carter after all maybe yeah i mean it's really interesting to watch someone whose approval ratings are kind of historically low have this run and then wonder what kind of effect it's going to have exactly. How much does it matter electorally? Is President Biden's um, lack of popularity just kind of frozen in cement at this point? I I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: For me, it's like hilarious to watch. Like you know, two weeks ago, will he run again? The Democrats want him out. You know, the hand wringing by Democrats, and then he's FDR, Lincoln, and. You know, whoever else LBJ all combined, LBJ all combined. You know, it's like so. Who knows what what's going to animate things, and we also don't know in terms of the politics of all this stuff. Just the undercurrent of the of the of the Roe decision and how that's going to play out in local elections, especially in some of these states that are are proving to be so heartless. And um, some of the stuff that you see is that people are voting Democratic and not necessarily saying that they like him, and that's fine for the party uh, as it moves forward and the party runs against another party and boy are they putting up some doozies so in the end this may end up uh, the whole bunch of things may end up making the senate more likely than not democratic and i'm i'm not pollyannish but i'm not convinced that the house is dramatically going to go to the republicans yet
0: do you guys think that biden himself deserves credit for any of these pieces of good news it's not really clear to me like gas prices are not plunging because of him um he didn't kill the head of Al-Qaeda. I mean, he approved some operation. The veterans' Healthcare legislation was a bipartisan piece of legislation, been in the works forever. The CHIPS Act is basically a Republican piece of legislation that Democrats glommed onto. And the Inflation Reduction Act is is Joe Manchin. You know, it's a Joe Manchin bill with, with Chuck Schumer. I'm sure Biden had some role there. But it, it's not clear to me that as, as president that what he is doing is... Is making the difference. It's just that there is a democratic structure in place and he's benefiting from it.
1: I disagree. I mean, I, I, I think once again, we're going to be talking about the president's setting agendas, right? So he may not set the specifics, but he's he's setting agendas. And, and these are complicated agendas that have withered for a long period of time, whether it's the environment, uh, technology, the 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 over the horizon capabilities after the withdrawal in Afghanistan that show that we can still kill the head of Al Qaeda. There's a limited amount of bandwidth for a government, uh, and what. What the president prioritized matters to agencies, matters to the Hill, uh, and matters for the kind of concessions that he needed at least in in this legislation. I I come from the non legislative world. When I was in government, it was more you know response and capability and 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 things like that. Um, and that matters too. If uh, if uh, we as we saw with COVID, right? I mean, uh, a president who decides that it's not in, an interesting thing that he wants to spend his time on will. Uh, uh, will will have an impact. So uh, priority setting energy, what the, and remember what the agencies do, what the bureaucracy does is very, very influenced by what a White House wants.
0: Emily, let's turn to the Inflation Reduction Act, which we still is not yet law, uh, but presumably is heading there once the House approves it and Biden signs it. What about that bill has you Uh, intrigued? What seems what seems useful in it? What seems valuable in it?
2: So I guess a few things. Lowering prescription drug prices is very popular. It's something that voters have wanted for a long time. Democrats are giving them one of their heart's desires. Um, It should be a good thing for the world to have Medicare able to negotiate prescription drug prices. Um, And it should be the kind of thing that matters for Democrats' chances in November. The energy provisions seem really important, right? I mean, this is the biggest piece of legislation trying to um, impact climate change that we've seen. It does it mostly by trying to incentivize um, renewable forms of energy. Yes, the pipeline that Joe Manchin wants that goes through West Virginia is going to get built, but... Um, But it seems like people who work on climate change issues are just thrilled that this is happening. And given that two weeks ago, it seemed like Joe Manchin was going to be responsible for the death of civilization, that is um, a big relief if you care about climate change. And then finally, I think, you know, while the uh, tax increases look like they have some loopholes in them, it's important that corporations are going to be paying at least 15 percent. I mean, I don't understand why it's not higher, but at least there's something in there. And they are trying to pay for the bill. And it just seems like a pretty good expression of the Democratic Party's values and priorities. I mean, I also am going to express some sympathy with Manchin that – Build Back Better had so much in it. I could never remember all of the provisions. Like every time we did this show and I had to think about all its many tentacles, I just got lost. Um, maybe my brain is too small. But having a bill. Oh, no.
0: Totally with you. I same, mean, same, same.
2: right? Like having a bill where you you can list out what's in it. Um in 30 seconds or less, is, is I think, helpful. And that doesn't mean that, like, the child care and elder care and other provisions in it aren't important, family leave. But I think trying to do this in pieces, having a signature accomplishment that you can actually make clear to voters is helpful.
1: We can look at the details of it and say it didn't go far enough or the loopholes. There's actually... Uh, a piece that's starting to get noticed that most electric vehicles won't qualify for the federal tax credit uh, or the full federal tax credit because mansion uh, got in a provision that requires a certain percentage have been made in America our supply chain for things like cobalt and others where uh, let's just say that it you know that the stuff like that is made in places like Congo a lot easier than they're made here. Uh, So a lot of the cars and car manufacturing companies uh, don't envision uh, that Consumers will get the full tax credit, so there are going to be surprises out of this that it didn't go further than people thought. Because I think that's one piece where people think, "Oh, that's actually a lot of money for a tax credit." But um, like Emily, there's—I I sort of think of this as proof of life, Bill. It shows that systems can work, um, and in particular, the other, the the health stuff and other stuff uh, wasn't my focus. It's the environmental stuff. You cannot underestimate or one cannot underestimate not simply what this means to show this kind of investment, sort of historic investment in alternatives uh, rather than, than, oh, this is like a nice little thing. Let's see if we can go somewhere with it, right? This is now going to be the way we think about energy uh, investments uh, in the future, which then, of course, will have uh, an impact on our climate, which, of course, then will have an impact on climate disasters and our vulnerabilities as a society. So that's the first piece. But the second, and this is where, you know, looking at reporting from abroad, uh, in particular Europe and China and elsewhere, uh, uh, is interesting because it's it's also Uh, a sense that America is back in the game. We tend to think about uh, isolationism as being about national security and war and things like that. It's also about uh, uh, economic competitiveness and the extent to which the analysis abroad is, wow, uh, they may not be the lead player. They may not be where we want them to be, but they're back in the game, and I think that is really important because it's a global competitive economy. You want you want countries looking to the U.S. rather than China or elsewhere uh, for this new economy.
0: I just want to spend a, a brief second on the provision that most interested me, which is the expansion of the IRS and the proposal to fund eighty seven thousand hires. Although th- to be clear that a lot of that is for from attrition due to retirement. But it's really interesting whether this move to get people to pay the, their fair share of taxes and, and to stop them from cheating the government will work as well as they hope it will. I, I think that a lot of Americans, especially rich Americans, do a ton of tax avoidance and they find clever ways to get out of taxes. And probably the IRS is going to uh, target that. Um, and, and get some of it. I, I wonder how, if there's going to be a backlash, I really do. Because nobody, everyone thinks the other person is cheating, but that they, what they're doing is just, they're just taking advantage of the rules and everyone else is cheating. And I wonder what's going to happen when every millionaire or every centimillionaire in the country starts getting heavy audits and how quickly they're going to put all their funds into Republican party and how quickly the Republican party is going to defund this.
1: The IRS would be smart to once this is passed to maybe give a sense of what the priorities are going to be in enforcement because a tax audit isn't nothing. I mean, it, it's a big deal. So prioritizing it and then they're not going to do it, but man, these churches and their nonprofit status as they become, you know, like you basically rallying for political causes is just ridiculous. And the brave IRS commissioner would, would would use that as a priority. It's the most outrageous loophole in the world. These are not churches. They are the faith of, of Trump, and it's ridiculous. Well,
0: I'll throw it back at you, which is there are a ton of nonprofits which work for progressive causes, which are yeah. effectively also politically active, and they get, get tax benefits too. I mean, I know churches are different.
1: So you could say don't touch any of them because it could be used against the next in the next administration could be used. And then all of a sudden you're going after Greenpeace or or, you know, Human Rights Watch or whatever. Um, but I think that there is that, that there is some cases that are such outliers uh, in terms of what's permissible behavior uh, the, uh, at the site. Right. That uh, that it'd, it'd be worth looking at.
0: Caitlin Dickerson is an Atlantic staff writer and the author of An American Catastrophe, The Secret History of the U.S. Government's Family Separation Policy, which just came out in the Atlantic. This is a case where the headline really matches the subject. This is the story of an American catastrophe. I would urge you listeners to read this story, which is very deep and very complicated and incredibly richly reported. It tells the story of the Trump policy that separated 4,000 children from their parents, then lost hundreds of them, and how that policy came to be. Uh, So, Caitlin, it is perverse for me to ask you to simplify the story, because your point is really that it's not that simplifiable. It's the result of many, many actions by many different people who overwhelmingly did not understand the consequences of what they were doing or chose not to see the consequences of it. But as much as you can, can you just start by please sort of summarizing the key points from... The story, which it also was a story that you broke originally.
3: Thank you. Yeah, there were a lot of reporters. We were all kind of doing it really alongside each other. Um, I decided to jump into it because after covering this in 2017 and 2018, when it all took place, I just still felt like there was so much that we didn't know. And I felt like the really quick, quick scapegoating of Stephen Miller, um, who obviously was a huge driver behind the uh, Donald Trump's immigration policies, he was President Trump's chief advisor on immigration, and then of Kirsten Nielsen, who was the DHS secretary at the time, DHS is the Department of Homeland Security. It wasn't really doing anybody a service in that, you know, this policy took dozens of very high ranking government officials to sign off on it in order to be put into place. And then of course, it was carried out by hundreds of people working under them. And I felt like it was really important to figure out, how that all actually took place. So, you know, a few things. Um, you know, this was an environment of very intense pressure, not that it, it absol- absolves anybody of, of their responsibility, but one thing I heard over and over again is like you could not imagine how many phone calls I was getting from Stephen Miller, um, from his associates at the White House. This is what I was hearing from high-level officials at DHS who, who ultimately approved of this policy they talk about facing unprecedented pressure to do so, and and just not feeling like it would have been strategic for them or for their careers to push back and say, "Hey, this is you know I think a really terrible idea." Some of them told me they thought the idea to separate families was so outlandish it would never actually go anywhere. It was just one of these grandiose notions that you know Miller was batting around in meetings, um, and others just told me they figured you know somebody else would actually would actually get in the way of it. So they didn't need to sacrifice their own careers to do so. Um, And because you had all these people stand by um, and allow this to happen actively or passively, you know, you you ultimately get the separation, as you said, of of thousands of families and hundreds of whom still haven't been reunited.
1: Your description about, you know, both how the bureaucracy should work for a reason, but also their faith that the bureaucracy would stop the evil, right? That's the other side of it, that people's confidence that you you couldn't possibly be making such a bad decision – uh, and therefore it couldn't possibly be made, right? I mean, that seems like a lot of people. And yet
2: Nielsen's decision to believe these lies, oh, we've done this before, and her lack of curiosity about how it was going to work, I found that unforgivable, frankly. I mean, I know she's not like the driving force and that's like Miller and um, a- and that's McAleenan, who's the head of Customs and Border Patrol, but I still just found that, Really hard to take.
3: I think a lot of that is this pressure that she faced to prove that she wasn't a squish, to prove that she wasn't a moderate. You know that she could be tough enough. That's actually a phrase that I heard President Trump said to her over and over and over again: "You're not tough enough." And so, you know, she kept trying to to inch over to the right further and further to to meet these expectations until she just completely lost sight of, you know, reality. As you say, when you know when she's she's been being given these assurances. That don't make any sense. You can call up any prosecutor in the country and, and ask, and I have, and ask them, you know, what do you think about an idea to prosecute thousands of parents outside of their communities traveling with small children who don't, you know, speak the language necessarily and, and they say, you know, this would obviously be chaos. It's not rocket science to figure that out.
0: Digging into that, Caitlin, one key th- thought that I had, or one thought that I had as I was reading this was that one of the reasons why it was possible is that it was not owned by one agency, that if DHS had had to not just make a decision, but also actually had to prosecute everybody and also had to house all the kids and be responsible, that almost certainly this decision would have been made differently because they would have realized, oh man, we're now responsible for all these children. We're losing track of them. Oh man, we actually have to deal with you know the criminal prosecutions of all these people. And then the fact that you were able, the DHS was essentially able to hand off the ugly parts of the decision to a different agencies allowed them to to do it and wash their hands
3: i think the trifurcated or maybe even more you know forcated than that like the uh, nature of our immigration system did make it easier for conversations with you know, nobody knowledgeable present to go on um, where these assurances could be given. Everything's going to be smooth. Everything is going to go fine, and there was just nobody in the room who was able to push back. Um, but putting immigration enforcement all all into to one place, I think, would also be tricky. I'm curious what you think about this, Juliet. But you have you also have this this kind of cultural divide between the Office of Refugee Resettlement in HHS, which houses the separated kids and unaccompanied kids, most of whom in those in that office, they're social workers, um, they're people with expertise in child welfare. They're, they have actually, you know, sometimes what feels like the opposite goal of the enforcement agency, which is looking to introduce consequences and to deter migration. And so, you know, people at ORR um, would of course, not want to turn over, you know, care of children to the law enforcement agency that is DHS. DHS would would never want to turn. I mean, correct me, Juliet, if you think differently, but enforcement over to social workers. So it's it's a very big mess. Um, And, you know, the fact that it's it's handled by so many different agencies is is one of, frankly, many problems here,
1: right? HHS is is catching up the whole time. They're not, you make the point, like they're not at the table and it wasn't surprising to them that they weren't at the table just given how the department was solely fo- focused on, and it wasn't just child separation, border enforcement, um, which is uh, a priority that's going to have consequences for HHS, which is in sort of the the receiving mode. And And to your point, David, that line, I thought, you know, Kirsten Nielsen being an interesting, not forgivable character. She says, right, she says, I didn't prosecute them and I didn't house them. It's like, what? Like, are you freaking serious? But that's how she's viewing it is that's HHS and that's DOJ. I'm just the guys who uh, <laughs> who grab them, right? I mean, it's just and it's a remarkable point. But I, I agree with that, that. And then when you're white – you know, the way the interagency should work is then your responsible player at the White House says, let's get all these equities to the table and figure out how this is done. This is why it's also a story in policy policymaking um, and see where we drive resources. That responsible person, it doesn't exist because it's Stephen Miller.
2: Well, and let's not leave out Alex Azar, who's the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, who seems totally checked out and like also not believing what's happening. And from your reporting, i um, you know, utterly ineffective. Um, I wanted to move us forward. You know, one of the lessons you drive home in the piece, I think, is that while this policy was a catastrophe and got news coverage, there hasn't been a whole lot of consequences for a lot of the people involved. And I think you raise the concern that as a result, this could happen again. Um, you talk about an interview with the current head, the Biden administration's secretary for the Department of Homeland Security, um, And he's not interested in, you know, talking to the people who are still in his department who participated in this of having some big investigation or review or report. I worried about that. Um, And I also wanted to ask you about this um, part of the piece in which the current Department of Justice is still in some ways pretending in court that there was no family separation policy, which I didn't understand at all.
3: Well, I'm actually curious for your thoughts on that, Emily, because I I tried to figure out why DOJ is still defending family separations and these civil cases brought by families who are seeking damages for what they experienced. And- what I what I heard made sense, except in this extreme circumstance, when you're dealing with family separation and an administration that has been unequivocal, you know, Biden has called this criminal. But basically, what I was told is that, you know, a lawyer's responsibility, a loyal lawyer's ethical duty is to defend their client as vigorously as possible. The government in this case is their client. So this is this is what they've got to do. And, and it is, I think the norm. Um, but again, we're talking about an extreme circumstance here. And, and so I wondered if you you thought there was any possibility that the DOJ could change its posture. I mean, I know then you also have the fact that Biden isn't supposed to influence what what, um, prosecutors under DOJ do in court. Um, To your question about accountability, right? So there are a number of things that that could happen that haven't happened. Meaningful consequences for people who were responsible for this policy. And and especially, I, I think, you know, those who pushed it forward by giving frankly false assurances to for example you know the homeland security secretary and others as well as those who we're responsible for completely misleading the press and Congress. I mean, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, that's not something that we, we do in this country is actually, you know, put out statements from the federal government that that contain not a no comment or not a change the subject, here's something I'd rather talk about, but just a straight up, no, we're not separating families when in fact we are. That feels to me like a moment that's worth, um, you know, just sitting with for a minute and and, and recognizing that that does fall far outside the bounds of, of, you know, a functioning democracy. And then, of course, there's the families themselves. And some are seeking, you know, an apology. Others are seeking damages. I think all that I've talked to, at least, are, are seeking any kind of assurance that this will never happen again. Um, and there there is no meaningful impediment to family separation starting up again, you know, tomorrow. I um, the Biden administration has, has been unequivocal. They don't want to do that. But in a future administration, it could easily happen because still, you know, I, I try to point out and we've actually talked about this before on your show, you know, Congress's failure to act created a vacuum for this policy in the first place. And, and they still haven't done anything in response to this policy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about reparations as I was reading. Now, that would be a huge policy change from defending the government's conduct in court. Um, But I think it's another thing we should sit with. Um, And, you know, that's what these damages suits are at least like a step toward. Right. And you document, and I think it's very easy to show the incredible continuing cost this is having on both kids and parents. I mean, that really hit home for me in terms of the you know the particular um stance of the Justice Department in court that you talk about, like, absolutely, they don't need to be saying that there was no family separation policy when there clearly was, right? Like, even if you are going to defend these civil cases, it's really important to do that within the boundaries of factual reality. And I got very concerned when I read that part, because it felt like zealous advocacy kind of run amok. Now, I mean, I am i don't know a ton about these cases, it's possible there's something I don't understand that explains them, but I found that troubling.
0: I just would like to note that if your premise is that we're trying to enforce immigration law and there's a population of people trying to enter the United States on the southern border and that population is growing and increasingly desperate and there's a rise in climate refugees and the people are driven by a very strong compulsion and you decide you don't actually want to let a lot of these people into the country or allow them into the country, the solutions you end up coming up with are going to be cruel. I don't think I think it's very unlikely extremely unlikely that we don't have things that are like family separation in the future we're going to be very very cruel if there are huge surges of migrants trying to enter the country and the country decides they don't want them and this is just one appetizer for that
3: i think that's one way of looking at it and and look you might be right david um i also think having looked back at you know our entire history of immigration policy in this country, you know, you can approach it as a law enforcement policy. um, But it can also be approached as an economic policy where we look at redistributing visas and making sure that we have enough visas available to fill the demand for labor so that you don't have this incredible demand, which also draws people to the United States on top of the circumstances that they're fleeing in the first place. You know, root causes is something that you hear usually two or three times at the beginning of an administration and then never again. Um, And that's kind of what's happened under the Biden administration. But working to actually try to help, you know, stabilize the economy and stabilize public safety, which takes a long time, it can't always be done in four years. And I think that's why it gets forgotten. Um, But that would go a really long way as well. I I think academic research has shown that's not just conjecture. So, you know, I think you're
2: talking about stabilization in the countries of origin, Guatemala, Honduras, etc.
3: Thank you. Right. So that people feel like they can have a job, they can feed their kids, um, they feel, safe. You know, most migrants, almost all migrants that you talk to arriving in the United States would prefer not to be here, um, would prefer to have stayed home, um, but really come because they feel like they have absolutely no choice. And so, you know, it, it would take an administration that was willing to um, make some sacrifices. I actually appreciated, Hearing from there was a guy, John Zadrosny who was on Stephen Miller's White House immigration team, and he couldn't have been more candid about, you know, the way that they approached all of these issues. And, and one of the things he said to me was like, look, we're willing to take a few arrows. You know, we know this isn't going to be popular with everybody. We don't really care. Um, and it would be interesting to hear a Democrat, you know, administration take that same tack and say, you know what, I think this is for the greater good to try to tackle this, even if it's not going to score immediate political points. I do think that's what it's going to take to get us past reaching for these harsher and harsher consequences as if they're the only tool available to us when they really aren't.
0: Caitlin Dickerson is the author of An American Catastrophe. Read it in the Atlantic. Thanks, Caitlin.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, uh, when you are lazing on a late, late summer day in New Haven with a with a, a delicious mint julep on your porch, what will you be chattering about?
2: We have a family friend, PJ France, who uh, was trying to release a single, a song he wrote on his own um, this summer. And I, in watching this kind of take place, I learned something about the economics of how you try to do this as a musician, like all the kind of social media angst that goes with it. So this song is called Down Bad. PJ wrote it and performed it. He made a TikTok, like I think made a bunch of TikToks earlier this summer or spring to kind of get interest going, you play like snippets of the song on the TikToks, you're not giving it all away, but you're trying to like craft an appealing image of yourself in, I don't know, like 15 or 30 seconds, then you get a bunch of downloads, then you start trying to get in touch with um, agents or labels, would they maybe represent you, if you're just starting out you probably don't get them to sign you immediately. So you're trying to get your song onto Spotify on your own and figure out how to get it onto some playlists to kind of bump it up. And it it just is so social media and kind of word of mouth dependent. It sort of feels like trying to win the lottery. Watching it just made me feel like mu- musicians, I mean, it's always obviously been really hard to make it as a musician, but this idea that you have to launch yourself and somehow get hundreds of thousands or millions of people to listen to your piece of music um, just based on, like, the strength of your own charisma and appeal. It's just, um, it's a tough world out there.
0: Well, but it's interesting because, like, do you want it to be just the gatekeepers? Do you want it to be just that record labels decide whether you get to make it or not?
2: Right. It's totally democratizing. I mean, PJ was telling me about someone else he knows who released a song a few years ago, it didn't really go anywhere, and then suddenly it turned into some massive hit in Indonesia. Um, so yes, you're right about the lack of the gatekeeping function. On the other hand, it's totally
1: um it's hard,
0: Juliet, what is your chatter?
1: I've been thinking about Olivia Newton-John, who passed away this week. Uh, she had a very complicated uh, messy, messy life uh, in the last uh, few decades. But I think anyone of a certain age should stop and uh, appreciate. Her her most famous role of course was in Greece. Um, She played Sandy. Sandy, tell me about it. Stay. I got chills. They're multiplying. Of a certain age, you have not seen Greece. Do yourself a favor, it's lots of fun, very silly. It was uh, larger than life uh, the, much like a, a Star Wars release was at that stage. It was the highest grossing film of the year uh, that year uh, and uh, defied all expectations And one of the reasons was of course her. She plays a uh, goody two shoes Sandy uh, who uh, who falls for the the bad boy. Well in our age of sort of feminism I'm sure like lots of people will have like bad feminist takes on on Sandy's amorphosis to please the guy but there is something about her going from cute sandy with the with the little bows to leather clad uh, sandy uh, with four inch heels uh, telling him he better shape up uh, and um, and it's an image that uh, that I think every girl dreams of doing one day
0: my chatter I have been incensed about something in Washington this week. The federal government is doing something that is so joyless and pointless and stupid here in Washington, D.C. And I just you guys are just going to have to bear with me. There is a place called the Capitol Stones in Washington. It's an alley, a pile of stones, a pile of old stone behind the stables in Washington, D.C. in Rock Creek Park. And they're the happy accident of bureaucratic negligence. So basically what happened in the 19 late 1950s, early 1960s, they were redoing the Capitol and in the course of redoing the Capitol in the east front of the Capitol, they had to take a whole bunch of st- original foundational stones out of the Capitol to build this new front to the Capitol. And so they took tons and tons of stone, some of which was just blocks of stone, but a lot of it was carved. There were whole columns. If you've ever been to the National Arboretum in Washington, the columns in the National Arboretum were taken off of the Capitol in, in, in this moment. And, and the National Park, excuse me, the architect of the Capitol who controls this took these stones and dumped them in the woods in rock creek park in the early 1970s they they sort of they they didn't know what to do with them so they just dumped them in the woods in these piles um, in a kind of nowhere place in in rock creek park and nobody knew about them until about 20 years ago people started to realize oh there's this incredible pile of stones at this point they had gotten all mossy and you see these carved stones. You see stonemasons' marks from the stonemasons of the 1790s who are preparing these stones for the Capitol. And it's in an avenue. It's a kind of avenue, and it really feels like a Mayan temple—a discovered Mayan temple. Um, and it's behind. It's and it's they're beautiful. And like you go there, and it's a, it's an almost you know, transcendental sacred experience. It's really weathered and beautiful. And it's all the trees have grown up around it and the bushes around it. And it's, a, it has this quality of sacred space and the national park service controlled the land, the architect of capital controlled the stone. Um, and, but they were basically embarrassed by this. They were embarrassed that they had dumped this national heritage in the park and they increasingly over the years had started fencing it off and fencing it off. And the fences got more and more aggressive. And this week they announced that, They are going to move the stones out of Rock Creek Park and put them in a storage warehouse in Fort Meade where they will be inaccessible to the public. And so their claim, their claim is, oh, people are going off the trail to go to the stones which is technically true the stones are like 12 feet off of a trail so in order to get to the stones you do have to walk about 12 so maybe
2: make and i'm like 12 feet little yeah you could like
0: literally make a 12 foot trail and get to the stones i could do it this weekend if they asked me to um and then they say oh the stones are subject to vandalism or theft but there's been no i've been there 20 times in the last decade there's no vandalism no theft they're just people go there and they have this wonderful experience with it and it is just the shriveled hearts of these people their lack of understanding of what these these stones mean is so stupid it is a grim and sad and small-minded move to lock these stones away which have brought so much pleasure to people and are just you know sitting there majestically for us and i'm incensed about it so that is my chatter
2: that sounds extremely frustrating. Can I add something? I have this friend, Caitlin DeSilvie who is a geographer, a cultural geographer in the UK. And her work is about the idea of curated decay. Like that when you have a monument that might be sort of accidental or there are trees oh. growing out of it or like.
0: Amazing. Yes, yes, that
2: those are some of our most precious memorials and that the task of whoever's managing them is to figure out not how to like cement them into place or totally preserve them which is what moving them to the warehouse or whatever would do but just to like let it kind of live and breathe in its more natural state
0: listeners you have also sent us chatters you sent us great chatters uh you ge- email them to us at Slate.com. you tweet them to us at at slate gabfest and this week you you sebastian cray have sent us a listener chatter this is Sebastian in Brooklyn, New York. Next week, I'll be taking my team, the Village Lions, to the Bingham Cup in Ottawa, Canada. The Bingham Cup is a rugby tournament of LGBTQ teams with over 70 teams and thousands of players coming from all corners of the world to compete. The Bingham Cup was founded in honor of Mark Bingham, who was a gay American rugby player who started the first inclusive club in the United States, the San Francisco Fog, and was in the process of founding the Gotham Knights in New York when he was killed on 9-11. Mark was one of the counter-attackers on Flight 93 that help bring the plane down. The tournament is held every two years in Mark's honor and celebrate the growing inclusivity of rugby around the world. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shayna Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at gabfest and tweet and chatter to us there or email it to us at gabfest at slate.com. For Juliette Kayam, the always super sub at Juliette Kayyam and Emily Bazelon, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, If you are Serena Williams, you're pretty good because you're. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com/slash/gabfest plus to become a member today. Greatest tennis player of all time, one of the greatest athletes in the history of the world, announced that she is going to leave professional tennis after the U.S. Open. I am sure, Emily that Serena Williams means a lot to you because you're a tennis player and you, I've heard you talk about her in bits and pieces. So why did she mean a lot to you? Does she mean a lot to you?
2: I mean, I think Serena Williams just, uh, as this kind of incredibly strong, determined woman, this ferocious tennis player, she kind of changed the image of female athletes in important ways. Um, If you are not a fan or somehow don't know much about her. I really recommend reading um, the writer Claudia Rankine on Serena Williams. She's just so interesting on, um, you know, race and gender and tennis and class and privilege, um, all these elements that have gone into Serena's legacy. I also think the movie about her dad is interesting, especially the parts about coming up in this very white country club world and what it was like to be Venus, um, Serena's older sister, and her proving themselves in that context. Um, I guess the, I have sort of two things I want to ask you guys about. I mean, one thing about Serena that has struck me for a long time is that in some ways the, the prep single misfortune of her tennis career is that she didn't have an amazing rival. So the player who beat her the most times was Venus Williams, her older sister. And Serena is clearly the dominant of the two of them in terms of their entire careers. And if you look at the other people who beat her a substantial number of times, it's from a long time ago. It's like Martina Hingis and Jennifer Capriati. It's not people who we recognize more recently. Um... And so, as a viewer, I just sometimes felt frustrated by that. I kind of wanted Serena to have someone that was like, you know, Chris Everett for Martina Navratilova, or you know, the Djokovic, Nadal, Federer rivalry in, in men's tennis. Um, so I don't know. Are you guys enough tennis fans that you think about that? What's your context for Serena?
1: I, I mean, I, I I follow her. I know her. i sort of in awe of her. You know, she's she even her sort of farewell. Uh, that she wrote herself, right, for Vogue, as sort of how she was going to exit, or as David said, evolve, which is a much better way to put life changes. Um, was um, I couldn't relate to it in a way. I mean, just the way you know, just that that kind of talent and stature is you know so, so she doesn't just start a company she's you know talking to Cheryl Sandberg about about starting a company you know it's like it's
2: like, okay you know it's a verified world right so very that a ver- one that, lived that, that, in. that did
1: come off and whatever but obviously she also earned it i mean it, in other words the, the, that's the breaking down of barriers i think two things sort of came to mind to me and i mean one is is what does it mean to have a uh a, uh what a, a athletic body and be a female I think that cannot be underestimated the pictures of her um are I mean she is the top athlete athlete uh of a female athlete and she does not fit a mold I mean and I mean part of that is 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 uh, is her family part of that is she embraces it the cat suits the 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 over the top hair everything and I just love that and you you see that in, in younger girls. There's a whole movement. I'm a water person, so sports, uh, uh, surfing and, and paddleboarding and stuff. But in swimwear, wetsuit wear, whatever, just an acknowledgement that women's bodies are not, you know, are not Gidget uh, or, or Sandy uh, for Olivia Newton-John. The second, I, I really loved what she said. This is the essay that she had in, in Vogue saying goodbye. What she did say about her sister, I've always wondered— about the two of them. I mean, I know they're very supportive of each other. uh, But when she says that her sister's defeats were actually what allowed her to succeed, I thought was such an amazing, sort of beautiful acknowledgement of something that couldn't have been easy between the two of them both being so competitive. And then later she says... I'm the emotional one. Venus can handle anything, and I—that made me feel like I had some insight into something I've always been curious about, just on a personal level. You don't—anyone who has siblings know they're complicated relationships and loving and everything. But uh, it is—I uh, love that part.
0: I'm—I'm I'm not a huge tennis fan, um, but I just admire her so much because she has this enormous charisma and I love, I think I was thinking about why, why, what makes her the greatest. And I think the people, the athletes who really succeed are athletes who break the cliche of their sports. The ones that you start, you see it first in sort of like fear or resentment or like confusion. And then you come to love it. And she, she, Took a sport that was built on elegance and built built on, on a kind of long limbed, long limbed I mean country club still, but but it was an elegant game, and she made it about ba- a game of power, and changed it and and sort of said, I'm going to change the rules of this, and when you go against type. Uh, you make something. You make something exciting, and and people. A lot of people resent it. People. People who are invested in how it used to be resent it. I mean, it's why John McEnroe was fun. John McEnroe was such an asshole in a game that was built around gentlemanliness and Connors too. And they they made this the this sport that had been quite restrained, kind of unpleasant, but it was unpleasant in this way that was exciting to watch. Um, and i i think that the the way that serena williams took a game which was a little bit boring and and graceful extremely graceful not not to take away and and very athletic not to take away from the the great you know gifts of the people she defeated and the people who came before her but to change the rules of it is incredible and those are the people you you remember and those are the people who really matter in a sport because they they not just they don't just um they don't just succeed in, in, in the sport's own terms. They don't just win the trophies, which, if, which she did, but they win the trophies and make people play it differently and make people watch it differently and make people understand it differently. And that is, that's a really cool thing to do.
2: Yeah, I love that. I also love that she came back to the sport after becoming a mother um, when her body in some ways didn't seem totally physically fit, but she did it anyway. And to me, there's something very poignant about the idea that she's exiting or evolving without the final, uh, you know, major tournament victory that would have brought her to the top. Or is it equaling Steffi Graf? I can never quite remember.
0: No, it's it's Margaret Court.
2: She's she's already passed
0: all the ones who really matter. It's just Margaret Court. She's at twenty three. Court's at twenty four. Thank you. So if she she wins the U.S. Open, she'll she'll tie Court, I believe.
2: Yeah, and you know, I think probably well, we'll see. But in any case, it doesn't matter. And you know, and in some ways, there's something better about the story if there's some um, pinnacle that she hasn't achieved because maybe that does make her seem a little more relatable.
0: By Slate Plus.